Welcome to the Dr. Lori Marvis podcast. Today, I am beyond excited to have Chef Ann Cooper. Um, Chef Ann Cooper is a celebrated author, chef, educator, and enduring advocate for better food for our all children. She's a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America and has been a chef for more than 40 years. Wow. Over 17 of those in school food programs. She currently serves as a food services director for the Boulder Valley District, known as the Renegade Lunch Lady, and has been honored by the National Resources Defense Council, selected as a Kellogg Food and Society Fellow, and awarded an honorary doctorate from Sunny Colesville for her work. In 2016, Anne was named one of the top 50 food advocates activist, excuse me, by the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. In 2009, Anne founded the nonprofit uh, Chef Anne Foundation, or CAF, CAF for short, to focus on solutions to the school of food crisis. CAF provides tools, training, resources, and funding to support schools transitioning to scratch-cooked meals made with whole, healthy food, which, of course, you guys know is one of my favorite things to talk about. How are you doing, Chef Anne? I'm great, thank you. Happy to be here. Great. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day um, for the the podcast. People are going to be so excited to hear your story. I'm excited to <clears throat> I'm excited to be here to tell it. Great. So, um, just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about how you even began your culinary journey and what led you down this path, please? Well, in 1973, I was 20 years old, and I decided to be a ski bum. And I hitchhiked from the East Coast to Colorado to be a ski bum in Telluride. And I had never had a job, and I had never cooked. And I got to Telluride with no money. And the first job that I could find was an assistant breakfast cook in a now-defunct restaurant. But I fell in love with food all those years ago. Wow. So you hitchhiked from the East Coast to Telluride, and which is a beautiful place. So... Any uh, fun adventures or memories you have of that little hitchhiking journey across the United States? Yeah, but I'm not sure there's stuff we can talk about on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's recorded. We can edit out anything. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I can only imagine in the early 1970s hitchhiking across America. <laughs> that alone would be a great podcast interview just for fun <laughs> oh I love it okay so you started there and then how did you end up in Boulder or doing all the things that you're doing now I mean that that's a quite the transition from a little defunct restaurant to there to now yeah so I really fell in love with food and I started baking and I started baking at night <coughs> excuse me I started baking at night so I could ski all day so literally for a number of years I would uh, ski all day. <coughs> Sorry. No problem. I can edit it out. <laughs> I've coughed all day. Hey, I can't do the Heimlich through the video, so be careful there. Oh, there. yeah. I got to talk to here with me. I'm good. <laughs> so all literally, right. myself and my business partner skied all day, partied at the bars till they closed, took a little nap, Went to the bakery at midnight, or one, baked until dawn, went home, took a shower, had a little rest, and went skiing. There was a number of years of that. And in that, I also managed, uh, when my baking company was called Rising High Dough Rollers, <laughs> and, and read all that you want into that. And, and then I was managing a bakery and started cooking at restaurants around town. 
And then I both I broke both my legs, one skiing, one hang gliding. And and now I'm in my twenties and I decided that I should go to culinary school. So in 1976, I went to, I applied to the Culinary Institute of America and was promptly uh, denied entrance because I didn't have a high school diploma. And so then I took my GED and I eventually went to the CIA in 77, graduated in 79, and then spent the next two years as a chef on cruise ships going around the world. I know. I was in 63 countries in 24 months. Yeah. I know. <clears throat> After that, I moved back to Colorado, and I, at 28, I became executive chef of a restaurant. And from there, I became executive chef of a hotel in Virginia, moved back to Colorado to become executive chef uh, of the ski resort, the Telluride Ski Resort. And then I started a catering company and so I stayed around Telluride and I catered for bluegrass and film and backstage for the dead and then in 1990 I moved to the east coast to Vermont and became the executive chef of the Putney Inn and I started writing books and I did consulting and I opened a restaurant in London and I wrote four books and one of the books was called Bitter Harvest, and it was about what was going on with the food supply and why food made us sick. And around that time, I got I was pretty well known for in you know sustainability. And one chef from every state in the country got invited to cook the White House, and I was the one chef from Vermont. So I was just known in sustainability worlds, and I got asked to take over a school in East Hampton, New York. And I eventually dropped out of being a white table cloth chef to become a lunch lady. And here I am now, 18 years later. Where do I even go with that? There's, there's so much. <laughs> there's so many little rabbit holes I can go jump down. Oh, my goodness. This is exciting. Okay, let's do this. One of my favorite things is I, I uh, love the topic of sustainability. How, how did you become interested in that? Um, in the from the food side of things, I mean, what what was prompting your thoughts during that time? You said it was in the early 1990s. Uh, yeah. So okay. when I graduated, I went to culinary school, and at that time there were almost no women. I was one of three women in a class of 75. There were no female culinary instructors at the time, and all of the instructors were male chefs. And so I, and from European European male chefs, and so I kind of learned how to cook coming up in this world of everything that was good came from far away. If you wanted good food, it came from France, you know, if you want it. So when I got to Vermont, a couple of things happened all at the same time. One, my niece, who is now one of the only female SWAT members in, in North Carolina, I mean, but anyhow, she was like two came to visit and she said, on in, I want to pick strawberries. And I said, yeah, let's go. Or she was maybe three. And she said, well, I can't reach them. And I saw the girl on the ground and she said, no, they grow on a tree. And I went, oh my God, my, my own niece doesn't know. So that was, you know, I started really thinking about kids and food. And then, so here I am thinking I'm some young hotshot chef. And they started one of the first farm to restaurant groups now you know they're everywhere but there was this was 
you know, in the early 90s. So Farm to Table was just coming up. And there was a Farm to Table group in Vermont. And I joined it and I went. And at that point, the Putney Inn, where I was the chef, was selling about 150 lamb racks a week. So I go to this meeting and I'm talking to the lamb farmers and I go, so I need 150 lamb racks a week. And they said, well, we can't. I said, why not? They said, because what are we going to do with the rest of the lamb? And they said, well, that's your problem. And they said, no, you're the chef. That's your problem. And it was this big aha moment. It's like, right. So I learned very quickly how to break down whole lambs. And during my entire tenure at the Putney Inn, we served uh, a lamb trio, which was always a grilled piece of lamb, a braised piece of lamb, and some kind of sausage. So, you know, that really started me on this idea of sustainability. And then I wrote Bitter Harvest. So the Bitter Harvest, and then what were the other three books? Would you share with us those? Yeah, the first book I wrote was A Woman's Places in the Kitchen. And... Uh, it was really about, so the whole title was A Woman's Places in the Kitchen, The Evolution of Women Chefs. And I was really thinking about, you know, I'd spent my whole young life thinking there's nothing worse than saying A Woman's Places in the Kitchen or Barefoot and Pregnant. And here I've been like working my whole career to get to be a professional chef. And so I wanted to tell that story. And in it, I met all the great women chefs from all across the country. And then the next book, I wrote after that was in Mother's Kitchen, and it was all those same women cooking with their mothers or their children. Then Bitter Harvest came next, and then the last book I wrote was Lunch Lessons, Changing the Way We Feed Our Children. Wow, I love it. So, wow, every one of those books is fascinating. So the um, chefs cooking with their their moms or their children, what was some of the... the um, Things you'd like to you would like people to know about that and maybe check that out. What would be the highlight of something that like that with the stories or lessons learned? Yeah, it's really about the stories. You know, I mean, it, it's just about the stories of some of the chefs actually with their kids growing up on the counters of the restaurants, and you know, it was that kind of stuff. It was like what happened when women took over restaurants and. You know, who were those first women that you know, sort of braved the restaurant industry? Wow. It was uh, it was a great book to, to write. Stories from Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Fenninger, the two hot tamales. And Alice Waters was in the book, and Nora Pollion was in the book, and uh, Odessa Piper. So a lot of the great women chefs, you know, from, you know, kind of the early days. Wow, that is so cool. And then the last book about the kiddos and the lunches, what would what would be the one thing there that we or who would your audience be there that maybe should check that out as well? Well, it, it's a little old now, but it certainly would be moms that want to learn more about school food. Mm. Uh, it was written about school food, so it was okay. written when I started in a public school system wow. in Berkeley, California. Oh, in Berkeley. Yeah. So then you're on the West Coast. I went. Yeah, I went from the East Coast. Right. to Berkeley, and from Berkeley came here to Boulder. Gotcha. Wow. Okay, so let's dive a little bit more into the kids' school lunches. So when you started with working with um, actual school systems and seeing what was going on there, what was the most surprising element that was, like, almost, you know, disturbing or, you know, I mean, I know what I grew up with and then what my kids grew up with. Tell me what you, what you saw. It was really bad. Extremo burritos, pizza pockets, grilled cheese sandwiches in plastic bags. There was no food. It was just processed crap. Wow. 
And so how, how did you start revolutionizing your, uh, your school lunches where you were? I mean, wh- how did you start that? I mean, because that one, you're on a very strict budget. I mean, right? I mean, how, how can you bring healthy foods into a place where they, what is it, a dollar or a dollar fifty per kiddo? About a dollar twenty-five is what we spend here in Boulder, okay. and a dollar twenty-five, I have to have five items offered every day: protein, whole grain, fruit, vegetable, and milk. And I have to do it all for dollar twenty-five. I mean, there's so little money in the system; it's crazy. When I got to Berkeley, the first thing we did was put salad bars in every school, and then we started, you know, item by item, replacing processed foods with scratch cooked. So we started making our own pasta sauce, you know, instead of opening cans, you know, it was just item, instead of serving chicken nuggets, we roast chicken. So just item by item by item. Wow. So how about the cooks? How were they? Because thinking, I mean, because now they're taking them from assembly line, open cans, pour, serve, to actually learning how to cook, or, or were they excited? Were there a little resistance? I mean, what was going on there? Did you have to replace people? Yeah. There was more than a little resistance. I mean, it's not like people who've been doing something one way for 20 years all of a sudden thinks a whole brand new way that they think of as much harder, you know, makes them happy. But no, it was great. In the end, you know, some people retired and new people came in and some people got really excited about it. And, you know, change is hard, but, you know, it happened and was great. Wow. So when you came to Boulder, what year was that? I came to Boulder in 2004. Okay, so 13 years ago. And so what What did you find there in Boulder? Is that right? Oh, no, sorry. I came to Boulder in 2009. Okay. I've been here for eight years. Eight years. So how were, well, that's 2009. And Boulder's pretty progressive with a lot of different things. So what, were you, what did you find there in their school lunches? Highly processed junk food. Really? I know. Wow. And so, and we went from almost 100% processed to now almost 100% scratch cooked. That's incredible. So what is the time difference? Like if you had a processed food kitchen to now scratch cook, I mean, is there more time, more staff involved? Or have you streamlined it to a point that it's it's not going to cost more? You know, initially there's some startup costs, but with expertise and technology, and by that I mean, you know, good equipment and software technology, you can make all these changes and be budget neutral. I mean, it's hard. It's a lot of work. you got to buy really well. There's a lot of th- you need to increase participation, but it absolutely can happen. So what are the changes? Because I, I know the Chef Ann Foundation has lots of different cool things going on. I mean, just one of those things alone would be an hour with the talk. So. Can you give me, what are the highlights of things that you guys do in each school? Like I know the salad bars and all the other stuff. Can you can you give us what you're doing? I mean, it's just incredible what you do. I mean, it's insane. So, this, you know, the school district is one thing. So the Boulder Valley School District, which I do, it's one of my three jobs. <laughs> so in the Boulder Valley School District, we have 52 schools, 31,000 students. I have 200 employees. They're spread over. 150 square miles, and we're cooking 13,000 meals a day from scratch. That's my first job. Just so my second, yeah, my second day job is the foundation, and the Chef Ann Foundation works in every single state in the country. We're touching 2.9 million kids, 
We, one of our projects is salad bars to schools, and we put 5,000 salad bars in schools across the country, raised about $12.5 million doing that. We have our big web portal, which is the lunchbox, that is, you know, all kinds of tools for schools to, to really segue from highly processed to scratch cooked. We have a program called School Food Support Initiative, which is a really deep dive into school districts that helps school districts to make that segue from highly processed to scratch cooked. We have Project Produce, so we have a lot of programs. <laughs> what was your favorite, what is your favorite most fun project to see the kids get involved in? Is there one in particular that you're surprised how well it went or? Well, there's one that's my favorite. It's Rainbow Days. So it's not enough just to put salad bars in schools. You really got to get the kids to eat off of them. And one of the ways we do that is something called Rainbow Days. And this is where we go into a school cafeteria, usually elementary schools, and we let every kid, whether they bought their lunch or bought their lunch, eat a salad. So they come through the salad bar and they have to make a rainbow on their plate. And if they eat their rainbow of at least four colors, they get a sticker. So and the kids get so excited about it. I mean, it's really, really great. So those, what ages are you talking about with the rainbow plate? Because that's fantastic. Uh, it's grades K through 5. K through 5. Is that the majority of the ages that your foundation works with? Or do you go to the oh, secondary as well? Yeah, we work pre-K 12. But oh. that specific project okay. works best with elementary school kids. So let's talk about kids and eating habits. So, you know, there's it's kind of like doctoring you know we have these preconceived notions of what patients will or will not do so we don't even offer nutritional information which is a shame um so one of my favorite things to do is help doctors learn how to teach nutrition to patients so they can you know get better reverse chronic disease and all that good stuff so what is some of the myths you found out you know about kids and eating vegetables and fruits and things like that. What what have you come across, and how do you correct that thinking um, from either administration or your cafeteria staff or parents? Kids will eat everything. I mean, that's what the myth is, that kids won't eat. You know, kids aren't the problem. It's usually parents that are the problem. It's usually the adults that are the problem. I mean... You have to work with kids. You have to bring kids into the process. You can cook with them, garden with them, have rainbow days, do Iron Chef competitions, cooking classes, and chef demos. There's so many ways to get kids involved. And with positive peer pressure, they'll try everything. It's really great. So the big methods that the kids won't eat fill in the blank, it's usually a power trip with the parents. So have you found that kids who are exposed to your programs and are eating better, have they changed some of their own families and their eating habits? Absolutely. You know, when you change kids' relationship to food at school, it changes the family's relationship to food. So when you go in and um, help a school change, do you need parental support too? I mean, do you reach out to parents? Is there like you know, PTAs that you're searching for, or is it a teacher, or is it an administrator? How do you approach a school, or is the school approaching you? I mean, how does this get started in a school? Well, you know, in my school district, I'm the director, so we just go out and do it. We certainly need parental support, but, but we work directly with the PTAs and the PTOs. We work with the principals, so we're very involved in the school district. 
at, at with the foundation or with other school uh, with or with parents and advocates asking me where to start it's really you know parents have the most control over all this so i don't actually just go to schools asking them to participate in some of the programs we want schools to come to us and oftentimes it's not the school that pushes it's the parents that push and parents who really want to make change can and often make the you know the biggest change because they're really motivated they want something better for their kids that's incredible so you said you're in all 50 states that is so fun. And then when, so when, uh, say a, uh, let's say a parent or a parental organization reaches out to you, what is their initial, uh, what is your next action? Do you go in and evaluate or do you call administration? I mean, what did, what can a parent expect? Because I, I suspect you'll get calls from the podcast. <laughs> well, it depends what they're asking for. You know, I mean, we have a lot of programs. Parents might apply for salad bar. They might apply for project produce. They might, or they might get their school to apply for a salad bar or their school to apply for Project Produce. They might become, uh, we have a parent advocacy initiative that's on our website that really helps parents uh, lobby and advocate or helps parents advocate in schools for better food. Hmm. So it really depends what the parent needs. I mean, usually they need information and we send them to our website where there's all kinds of information. Sometimes they want to set up a speaking engagement. Sometimes they'd like me to come to their school or their community and speak. So there's all kinds of different things. So what is the Project Produce? Project Produce is where schools can apply for $2,500 per school, up to 10 schools per district. And this money is given to the schools to be able to do innovative education around getting kids to eat more fresh fruits and vegetables. And it can be anything they want to do as long as it's about getting kids to eat more fresh fruits and vegetables. So it could be like cooking classes with little ones, with a, a, a growing a school garden, a greenhouse, anything like that? Oh, yes. wow. That is really cool. So, you know, as a parent, well, my kids are all grown now, but um, when you... don't look old they have all grown kids. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know. They're 23, 21, and 18. My my youngest is actually going to go to see you next in this fall, so he'll be in Boulder too. <laughs> so, visit, huh? You'll have to come and visit. I'll buy you school lunch. Oh my gosh, I can't! I will be honored to eat your school lunch. Gosh, that's fantastic. I mean, I remember as a kid, I grew up in New Mexico. All the school lunch was it was one color, and it was a frightening color. Um, yeah, I. Mm. <laughs> I don't even know. I usually brought my lunch because uh, it was cheaper. <laughs> um, but I was curious when when you're talking about food policy or you know advocate, do you go and approach on a national level? Do you do any you know because that's where that money's coming from? Oh bless your heart, I see that exacerbated look on your face. What what do you do or what can we do to help? I mean, because I'm going to have some day of grandchildren. I have children, so tell me. Can you get us a new president? Oh, dear. <laughs> no. I've, outside of um, a miracle happening, um, <laughs> I, no. I don't know how to approach that. I mean, what is it? Is it do you have you found it to be a political party like, you know, one one favors this over the other? Or is it just that the kids are just they have no voice? The Obama administration did the most 
had the most positive impact on school lunch of any administrations, you know, for decades and decades. Wow. Not only did they have the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, which really pushed forward healthy food in schools, but Michelle Obama, from the garden at the White House to advocating and cheerleading healthy food for kids, I mean, to Arnie Duncan, who's the former Secretary of Education, saying, if we want to close the achievement gap, we have to close the nutrition gap. There, the USDA, the Obama administration was amazingly supportive for kids and school food, and I worked with them a lot. Wow. Uh, in fact, the Salad Bars to School project started as part of Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign. Oh, wow. But uh, since the administration changed, I haven't really done anything hmm. with Washington. Okay, so are there state-level things that we can do um, or local? I mean, where can a parent, you know, start? Because, I mean, I let me tell you, when it comes to health care law and reform and nutrition and preventive medicine, because, you know, what, 80% of chronic disease is, is lifestyle-related. So um, it's incredible to me. Yeah, so what can you do? I mean, I've been to D.C. and quite deflated when I left because I feel like there's a hopeless situation here. So what what can we do to help moment, the momentum besides voting with our dollar? What would you recommend? Well, I think it, everyone can work in their own community. So if you want better school food in your district, in your community, then the first thing you should do is go and eat it. Find out what's really on the kids' plates. And then look at the school district's wellness policy. Every district in America has a wellness policy. Find it. It should be on their website. It should be available online. And if the wellness policy says they're supposed to be serving good food and they're not, then there's an implementation problem. If the wellness policy doesn't say they need to serve good food, then the wellness policy needs to be rewritten. Mm -hmm. So then you get a bunch of friends together, like-minded parents, and you go and talk to the director, the food service nutrition director in the school district and you just say, hey, you know, we want better food. How can we help? And if, you know, that doesn't get you a positive response, go to the school board and just, you know, get everybody you know to go to a school board meeting and tell the school board that you want better food for kids. So now if they want better food for kids and you mentioned the things that they're re you're required to have, is that across the board in America? Those, those things have to be implemented if they want America, yeah. the oh, food dollars, oh, I guess? Oh, the, I'm sorry, ask that again? The, if they want any, like, federal dollars, they have to implement those things? Yes. So if you want to get that federal reimbursement, which is $3.22 right now, it won't go up in July. For That's for a free lunch. It's $0.40 cents less per juice lunch. Mm -hmm. If you want that money, you have to go by all the federal guidelines. But you can exceed the federal guidelines. So that's not that doesn't hold you back in any way. Hmm. So you mentioned milk as well uh, is would almond or a nut based or a soy based milk um really the only milk that's allowed uh, the only milk alternative that's allowed is soy milk okay and are you required to offer offer a dairy because i'm not a fan of dairy you know, for obvious reasons and um so w do you could you offer just soy or do you have to offer both if you offered one you have to offer cow's milk at oh breakfast and at lunch every day. Oh, wow. That's unbelievable. So, you know, I've heard you hear things like, oh, they count 
um, tomato sauce on pizza or tomato packet as a vegetable. Is that true? Do they really do it like that? Well, not exactly, but sort of. Like, you know, Reagan tried to make ketchup a vegetable in the school lunch program, but it lasted like 19 seconds. However, the amount of tomato paste in pizza sauce can actually count as a vegetable in some cases. That being said, the new guidelines that came in with the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act actually state that every lunch and breakfast actually has to have, every kid has to be offered a cup of combined fruit and veg, and they have to take a half. And it has to be different colors. So you, a kid can eat pizza every day and get their vegetable component. So now you really have to go through all these colors. Uh, so it's a lot better. Wow. So is there any limitations on other unhealthy things like sugar or saturated fats? I mean, is there a limitation on what can be served per a meal? Yeah. So sat fat is, saturated fat is 10%. No, um, no trans fats. So they have to be zero in the label. Sugar is undefined. So you could have almost unlimited sugar, but there are calorie count maximums. So you can't really have unlimited sugar because you have to, you can't go over certain calorie counts. So now is that trans fats just from processed foods or because trans fats can yeah, also be found in animal products? Right, it's at no, zero added trans fats per label. And as you probably know, even if a label says zero trans fats per serving, there can still be trans fats in it. It's just that it has to be um, less than a certain percentage per serving before it has to be on the label. I think it's 0.5%, I believe. I read that somewhere. Um, wow. Okay, that's incredible. So what has been the biggest hurdle you've had to overcome or do you see people having to overcome to implement these things? There's five big issues, food, finance, facilities, human resources, and marketing. Food, where are you going to find it and make sure it's good? Finances, how do you pay for it? Facilities, what do you do if you don't have kitchens? Human resources, how do you train your staff? And marketing, if you do everything else, how do you get the kids to eat it? Mm. So all of those things in one way or another are the challenges that food service professionals, school food professionals face. And you offer resources for people to overcome those? All of those resources are on the lunch box. Oh, wow. That's incredible. So what is the one thing marketing-wise that we can do for kids? Is this like having superhero veggies or is this um, using cartoons to have them eat more? I mean, I mean, I can't believe what I can't believe is that United States allows advertising to children. That is over the top. Plus, or even advertising medications to patients. And you know, that's, this is a big beef of mine. But... Um, what do you do? I mean, if you look at marketing techniques, I mean, we can use those to our advantage. We can see what they're doing to have our kids eat horrible foods and use them to have kids eat healthy foods. What, what have you found that's been the most success in getting kids to eat those things? So for us, marketing's a little different. I mean, but marketing for us could be a rainbow day. That's a marketing event. It can be, we have Harvest of the Month cards. We produce these unbelievable calendars that we hand out to every kid. So we have a food truck, and that's partially marketing to high school kids. So we have all kinds of different things at different age groups. Tell me about the food truck. That is awesome. 
It is awesome. So we have a food truck. It goes to different high schools every day. And it's a way to get the high school kids to eat and also to stay on campus. Wow. So what's what type of foods do your, does your food truck offer? You know, it's not that dissimilar, but it's dissimilar enough. I mean, we quinoa kale burgers is often a vegetarian choice. Sometimes we have grilled chicken pesto sandwiches. Sometimes we do pulled pork. You know, and we always have a vegetarian item every single day, on the food truck and in the rest in in and on the schools. That's amazing. Yeah. So, have you guys ever explored? Um, I mean, I, we got our hands full just with the little kids, but uh, college campuses or universities? You know, early on in my career, before I really got into school food, I did a lot. After Bitter Harvest came out, I spent a lot of time on college campuses. So I've spoken at a lot of colleges. I've helped them work through trying to get better food. But really now, by and large, I'm in K-12. Wow. So... That is incredible. So you do all sorts of stuff. I mean, you obviously you have three jobs. Basically, you have three full-time jobs. I'm just tired talk, thinking about it. Um, what, what? Tell us like a day in the life of Chef Anne. <laughs> I'm just curious how you survive. Okay, so, so today, how about today? You want me to know? Sure. So in, in Colorado, it's 5.36. So my day started at 4 a.m. And I got up at 4 made some tea, started working on my computer. I was editing uh, an assessment for a school district. I got done at about 5.30, took a quick shower, went to work at my foundation, where I spent the next three hours working on curriculum for our new online program. Then I came to work here in the district. I was here a little after nine, and I've been in meetings all day, back to back to back including a meeting planning our new central kitchen. I ran from that meeting down here to talk to you. When I get done with our interview, I've got who knows how many emails to answer. Then I have to do a couple errands on my way home, and then I have to work in my garden, and then if I have some emails to check, and then I have to go to bed. <laughs> Okay, how what, I'm speaking like a doctor now. What is what <laughs> you? I mean, it sounds like a day in the life of a of a physician in residency. I mean, that's just insane. How many hours a night are you sleeping? I try to get six. You try to get six. Okay. Wow, that's you. So, do you have a family yourself? I don't. Okay. Wow. Well I, well, I tell you, when I started medical school, my kids were five, three, and 10 months old, and my husband drove 100 miles one way to return. So I kind of understand the utter insanity of a life. <laughs> Let's slow down a little bit, not much. That's so Wait, so your husband drove 100 miles to work? To work. Well, I was in medical school and with the three little people, and uh, there were some good times, good times. <laughs> yeah, well, we were both active duty, too. We've been in the military. We've moved all over, so it's... These poor kids, God bless them. I love them to death. But um, you mentioned you're working on an online curriculum. What is that about? Because I, I love learning more. So please tell me, what is that? Well, it's kind of a secret, but I'll oh. tell you, the oh. podcast listeners, it's okay. okay. So the Chef Ann Foundation has started the School Food Institute. 
and we are going to be starting online professional development curriculum for school food professionals and advocates to learn all about school food and segueing from highly processed to scratch cooked. That is incredible. Is there any way, for example, or do you find any resources that might help parents in their own home segue from processed to eating healthier? I'm curious. Well, or is it yeah, more professional I mean, development? This is really professional development, but, you know, it's all the same, right? I mean, we know what it is to eat healthy, you know? I mean, Michael Pollan said it best. Don't, you know, it's mostly plants, right? Right. Well, eat, I'm all plants, so. <laughs> yeah. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Right. And so I advocate, you know, forward menus, you know. Yeah, no, it doesn't have to be all plants, but plant-forward menus and, you know, mostly healthy food and have a few treats and treat them as treats. Right, exactly. Yeah, because someone, I can't remember who said it, was, um, you know, we're having Thanksgiving for breakfast and Christmas for dinner and New Year's or birthdays for dinner. You know, there's, we're just feasting all day long and... uh, Unfortunately, well, this is, I'm curious, what do you know about, like, food scientists and big food and how they're, you know, tweaking the food to make it so highly palatable and, you know, making us addicted to these things? How is, I mean, and what I do when I bring patients in and I explain to them, like, I think it was it salt, sugar, fat written by, uh, oh, what's his name? you call Michael something um Moss I don't recall anyway it was an amazing book and I'm Michael Moss Moss. Michael Moss perfect um and when I tell them about that I mean they're so incensed but it's just like how can they do that to us and have a conscience I was like well it's about the bottom line um they don't care about you and they when I mentioned that they say you know stomach share instead of their market share I mean, how much is Coca-Cola part of your stomach and Kellogg and whatever? They just, it just, like, it just blows their mind. And uh, so how is this big food, I mean, how they even put their claws into school lunches? I mean, or in the schools themselves. I mean, like, I've seen places like McDonald's or Taco Bell or Pizza Hut's actually in schools. How does that happen? <clears throat> Well, it happens because schools don't want to be in the business of food. Oh. Uh, but you're, you are seeing less of that in most places, okay. How, or at least the fast food in schools. So you're seeing less of that. However, you know, big processed food is just making us sick. I mean, that's all there is to it. And, you know, you talk about celebratory food. If you really think that the best thing in the world that you want is McDonald's, Great, have it be your celebratory food and eat it once every two months. But you know what? I mean, I might want foie gras as my celebratory food, and I might eat it twice a year. Mm -hmm. You know, no, it's not that healthy for me, but it's certainly delicious and it's something I want, so I eat it a couple times a year. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really, but school, big corporations are in schools through things like chicken nuggets and tater tots and extremo burritos and pizza pockets. I mean, it's all highly processed junk. Right. What I found is so I get people who anywhere from 21 and up we've had as patients. And, I mean, these people are morbidly obese. I've had people over 500 pounds. And, um, you know, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, 
High cholesterol, you name it, I they've seen I've seen everything. Autoimmune disease, everything. And when we see them, we bring them in, we put them on a nutritarian diet, Dr. Joel Furman's diet, and we actually give them intense um, psychotherapy, um, mental health help. And so it's been really fun to see that transition, to see them help them move into a healthy direction. But when they, we have to, I tell them it has to be 100% and abstain because what I've seen happen is they'll have one bite and they, they're like, oh, I had one. I can have another one tomorrow. So I think yet I almost with these sick people, they have to be careful. But there's so many sick people now that that's what I had. And so for kids, too, I mean, there's some um, concern, on, uh, you know, epigenetics. We're getting, you know, kids that are born. I seem to see six months old that are morbidly, you know, obese, six month old. And they're being breastfed because genetics have been turned on by what their parents or mothers were eating. And this there's so much in the microbiome. And, oh, yeah. So what, I know I've kept you, actually, the time that I've, I said 45 minutes, so I'll, I'll be good. Um, so I'm curious, what bit of advice would you give a parent or someone who's hearing this and saying they have children in their life that they go to public schools or private schools or, or whatever? Because you work for both, right? You would work with both private and public? Great. Mostly public. Right? Mostly public. What would be the one bit of advice you would give to them to get started? What should they do? They really, if, if a parent wants to change food in their school, they need to go eat the food, find out what it tastes like, find the wellness policy, see what it says, go talk to the food service or nutrition services director, see if you can work with them. And if not, get all your friends together, go to the school board and tell the school you want to change. Cool. That's the plan. Now, for those people who are looking for the wellness policy, and maybe these parents aren't well-versed in what is healthy nutrition. I mean, they understand. You would think we would know. But honestly, what after our speaking to physicians who are highly educated individuals, and they, they're good doctors. They're good at prescribing medications. They can save you in an emergency. I mean, I get it. I'm family practice. I've been all over. I was in the military. I was in the Middle East. They've, I know understand. But when it comes to the basics and foundation of nutrition, it's like you're, you might as well you just have horns coming out of your head because they don't understand what you're saying. You're like an alien or something. So what, where, do, do you have on your website what is actually the definition of healthy nutrition or what a wellness policy should look like? Or Yeah, yes. So on the Chef Ann Foundation website, there's a part of it that's called the uh, parent, uh, it's, it's a parent initiative. So you can go to the parent section of, uh, the Chef Ann Foundation website, and there's all the information a parent needs there. Okay. Wow. Okay, perfect. So this is really exciting. Wow. Chef Ann, thank you so much for your time. And there's one thing I like to do at the end of my podcast, because I interview some amazing people like you, and I just, I'm so... I've decided this is my personal way of using an excuse to meet awesome people. And uh, so you're one of them. But I always like to acknowledge my guests and say thank you from myself and what you're doing and your work and those who have benefited from your work who don't even know that they benefited and all their children because as a parent we love our kids more than anything and gosh I, I just it's such a blessing to meet you and, and talk to you and thank you so much thanks it's been great <laughs> thank you so much and I will um, be listing um, everything on the Chef Ann Foundation and how to reach you and your TED Talk and it's just incredible and uh, I will send you a link and say thank you again so much and I hope you have a wonderful evening 
Okay, thanks. You too. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. When I'm in Boulder, I'm, I'm going to hold you up on that school lunch. Yeah, please. Let me know for sure. Okay. Have a good night. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.